Happy Friday! Greetings, Theo. Happy Friday. I'm feeling Happy pretty Friday. good because the song oh, that I picked last week ended up on the official Theo playlist. It's <laughs> slightly balmy outside today, and it's not <laughs> raining at this exact moment. Yep, it's always like this. And in that's January. enough to be happy. Yep. Hey, did you watch the uh, finale of The Good Place last night? Ah, uh, no, I'm so behind on my TV watching. I love what, The Good Place. Do we have place. to have an intervention with you about the TV watching? I yes, absolutely. How much? Like, when are you going to do your TV watching? How well, is it going to happen? I don't know. It's really hard to squeeze in with little kids, but I, I need yeah. discipline. I need yeah. follow through. No spoilers. I love the good place. It's a lot about the afterlife brings up questions of the resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a very, it's a goofy show about the afterlife, but it does show how much, like who would have thought that in the year 2020, there would be a popular sitcom about the afterlife. I'd, on yeah. TV. Like, one that's actually good too right. and interesting. I'm yeah. sure you could do a really bad one. Oh, it's been done. But it goes to show you how much currency this topic has. Yes. Death, life, resurrection. God clearly has a problem with death in the yes. Christian tradition. What is that problem, though, and why is it there? That's I think, yeah, one of the kind of popular terms that people use for God, especially if you're in what we think of as a high church setting, so like Lutheran, Episcopal, Anglican, that kind of thing, they call Jesus the Lord of life, mm -hmm. which I, is one of my favorite yeah. titles uh, for Jesus, the Lord of life. But it, it starts to get, I, I think we just take that for granted, but when we actually start talking about the resurrection, we kind of get a, a glimpse into what that really means. Yeah, I, for me, the resurrection gets kind of vague and abstract, so I'm looking forward to hearing people talk about it in really specific terms, like what does it mean in terms of my own life? That's exactly you should lead right. with that. We should lead with that question. Great idea, right? That's a great idea. as if we planned it out. If there's anyone visiting here for the scholarship day, we want to welcome you. Would you help us welcome our guests yes, today? Welcome Thank our visitors. You. You're welcome. here for the Friday session of welcome. Theo 102. So in case you're visiting us, this class is called Theo 102. It also happened in the fall. On Monday, we have a lecture on a big topic following the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, broken down by phrases. And then on Wednesday, we meet in very small sections of eh, between 15 and 20 people to talk about what we're reading, what, what the lecture was about. And then on Friday, we come back in here and we have either a debate about some aspect of the topic or like today, we have a panel discussion with our lecturer and then other esteemed guests. Yes, and one of the favorite features of Friday, I think for me and for many of the students as well, is that students get to ask the question. So we get to hear what's on y'all's mind based on what you have heard. Um, in the lecture so far, so. Totally looking forward to that. Um, some more boring style announcements. We do have a book that we need you to be reading. It is by N.T. Wright. It's called Simply Jesus. It's sitting over there. I'm not gonna walk over there and get it, but it's blue. Um, and, you and for next week, as you'll see on the schedule, chapters four and five are due to be discussed in your section. Bring the book to the section. That helps discuss a lot. Yes. Um, by the way, that reminds me, Yes, we really want you to be reading the book, especially in preparation for the midterm, oh, which the midterm. will be on March 4th. March 4th. We March don't have the 4th, week 8 is the midterm. We don't have the schedule that far up on the website yet. We will, but it's March 4th for those of you who like to plan ahead. It's a Wednesday. That is the day of our midterm. And a little reminder for all you planner aheaders that we always have the study guide updated throughout the course. So if you are really feeling like you want to start that studying early, I know there's always a few in every class. It's always available for you. Speaking of studying, here's a hypothetical question for you, Dr. Okay, Payne. Okay. Pretend you're a student. Right. Are you Got there? It. Yes, okay. I'm there. What would you do if you did not even 
not only did you not read the N.T. Wright book, Simply Jesus, but you didn't even purchase it, and you have no intention of bringing it to your section, reading it, or any of the above, and you sat down for that midterm, and there were like eight specific questions about it on the midterm. Like, it's content, just really basic things, yeah. not like, what did he say at the bottom of page 12, by memory, go, not like that, but like, N.T. Wright argues basically, you know, things like that. What, what, what would you do um, wow. in that situation? you know, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of methody yeah. in my, my, I'm there as a student yeah. right now, and my blood pressure's going up. I'm feeling a little oh. bit nervous. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's very important that you um, include the book and the reading in your study habits. So please do that because there will be questions on the reading in the exam. We do know that the bookstore has been backordered or has all kinds of troubles and so on with the book. Um, we trust that people of your generation know how to get things outside of a bookstore. Is that true? Do you know where to get books and things <laughs> delivered to we you really fast? We cannot tell you in any concrete where. terms where you might we go don't to know. get that. We're, we're, we're over 40. We may not know how to use the internet, but you do, right? So that shouldn't really be an issue at this point. Okay. That's right. So please get the book. We're excited about the midterm. Hey, I'm going to leave you to it. I'm going to go wander around and yes, go well, host that panel, Dr. Payne. I'm excited about this panel. I missed you all earlier in the week. I was in sunny California for a few days, but I'm, now I'm back and I'm happy to welcome our panelists. Today we have Dr. Nijay Gupta, who gave the lecture on Monday, as you know. Please welcome Dr. Gupta. <laughs> An excellent New Testament scholar, among many other things, and also a Portland Timbers diehard fan. Um, and then we also have Dr. Joseph Clare. Please give a hand to do Dr. Joseph Clare, who is, among other, many other things, um, the Dean of the College of Christian Studies and also an expert in early church theology and philosophy and an expert in Augustine. And thank you for, our, for being here today. So um, I have a question to start you off with based on Dr. Gupta's lecture. Um, it's sort of a personal spin on Dr. Gupta's lecture. Dr. Gupta, in your lecture, one of the things that you talked about was how the resurrection of Jesus changed history. Um, I want to ask you all about your personal histories. How did the resurrection, how does the resurrection change your personal history? Dr. Gupta, you want to take that one Sure, first? yeah. Um, actually, we, we talked about this in my discussion group on Wednesday because um, for me in my early faith as a teenager, I had a view of the Bible and of the gospel that was very much in the past in the sense that, you know, thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me, past tense. And so Jesus is this figure in history, this, this person from the past, and he died uh, on the cross for my sins, and I can thank him, and I can sing about it. Um, but over time, I came to realize that the resurrection means not just that he did something for me in the past, but that he, he continues to do something for me. And as I read the Bible more and learned about the Bible, it talks a lot about not only what Jesus did, but what actually what he continues to do. And I remember reading the book of Hebrews. If you haven't sat down with the book of Hebrews, it's in the New Testament, it's really helpful talks about Jesus' role now interceding to the Father for us, which means basically being an advocate for us. And, you know, as I've spent time in Scripture thinking about that, it's amazing to think not only about what Jesus has done, but actually what he continues to do. And that, that inspires me to pray. It inspires me to be an advocate for others. And that's an important part of the doctrine of the resurrection. What about you, Dr. Clare? Yeah, um... I don't know what my first encounter with 
death was. Um, many of you have in, had a close encounter with it or someone you love. And my grandmother passed away when I was beginning high school. And I was there. She passed away. Um, there's something very unnatural about death, something that screams and protests no uh, as a human being when you experience the death of another human being. Even animals. I have a little hobby farm on the edge of town, and we have two uh, pigs that are going to be slaughtered in a week or two. And the thing that I know many the vegetarians are hating me now, but the, uh, the thing about animals is there's a kind of unnaturalness of death even in the animal community where if an animal dies, the other ones come around and they seem stunned. And, and I think that, that that inner cry of no to death seems to be that we as humans were geared for something bigger, something longer, something more full. It says in Ecclesiastes, we have the sense of like eternity in our hearts. And you know, even reading the Instagram posts and feeds this week in light of Kobe's death and thinking like the human heart protests against death, especially at an undue time, an untimely death, but also the thought that there might be something more, that he's in a better place or that there's still a connection that transcends time and space and our mortality. And I think that that's also there. Um, but what I've found as I've been reading the Bible, and I was thinking about this with Dr. Doak and Dr. Campbell on Monday, is that in the Old Testament, you get this hope, not just that we'll be in a better place and that you one day you'll fly away on that bright morning, but that we'll actually bodily, physically be alive again in a more full way. So I think the resurrection is actually like in between the lines of the Old Testament. As you read the psalmist protest saying, how am I going to praise you down in the land of the dead when I'm down in the dark grave or the promises of Isaiah, this kind of future hope that we will actually be in a place where children and infants won't die and people will live uh, to the fullness of their lives in this eternal sense. That hope actually was fulfilled in Jesus' resurrection and is a taste of a first fruit of a bigger resurrection for all of us who follow him and, and call him Lord. So I was just thinking about this as a long-winded, sorry I'm going on, but my, one of my dearest friends who teaches at Yale, um, his son was born, stillborn, the week before he was due, a couple weeks ago. And just that morning, um, he called me on the phone early from Connecticut, and then I went to church, and the reading that morning was Isaiah 40, and this promise of a land where infants won't die like that, and where we'll live well beyond 100, and there'll be this fullness of life where there's no more tears. And all of a sudden, I realized that by entering into my buddy Adam's suffering and lament and grief around his little guy Daniel, I was able to connect with the scriptural hope of resurrection in a deeper way. And I think that's what the church does by calling us into the word and together so that we can hope together. Because if you're not yearning for resurrection right now, someone else is, uh, most likely. Thank you. Thanks to both of you. Okay, so before we invite the students in on uh, this conversation through questions, uh, one thing that you all may or may not know is that, um, I'm going to let you behind the curtain here, academics love to argue about stuff, and so the debates are really fun, but um, Dr. Claire had a question for Dr. Gupta. We thought it would be good for your learning to participate here. Now, just to remind you all, these are two different disciplines represented. It, it might seem, you know, like they're doing the exact same thing, but the New Testament biblical studies and historical and theological studies are, are distinct, and so you might see a little bit of their approach to scripture and theology on display here, but Dr. Claire, you had a question for Dr. Gupta. 
I did. I, how many of you on Monday were uh, compelled by Dr. Gupta's lecture about being not one, two. death, be not I proud? I see that hand. Yeah, I, I see, see at least hand. two people, so I wasn't alone. I was compelled, and I, I felt almost emotionally drawn into it, like death, be not proud, and Jesus is beating death on our behalf, and he is risen, and you guys were screaming at the end. It was so powerful. But it brought me back to Dr. Doak's lecture a couple weeks ago on the view of evil that's like the let's fight view. Let's get on God's side and go out against the tyranny of evil and death. And it just kind of brought up this nagging question of why is God in a battle with death in the first place? Like, can't God just like with a wave of a hand just end the whole death problem like right now? And by the way, doesn't it kind of look like he put death on us through the curse after sin in Genesis 3 at the beginning of the Bible. So he's like solving a problem that he put into place. I just kind of, I'm so compelled by, I know you're into Marvel. I've never heard anyone lecture more about Marvel heroes (laughs) than Dr. Gupta. So I like the kind of hero approach, but I'm also like, why is it a problem for God anyway? Is anything really up against God and why did he need to defeat it? Yeah, it's, that's a really good question. Um, I'm going to answer a different question. <laughs> that's but, what they do. Classic uh, academic that's what move. They do, academics. <laughs> no, we, we got into a conversation in our discussion on Wednesday along the same lines about couldn't God have done it differently and made everything easier? And one way of doing that would be why didn't Jesus just appear to everybody? Or why didn't he, you know, we talked about the empty tomb. Why didn't he just, you know, we actually don't have anyone witness the resurrection, we have them witness the empty tomb. So why didn't we just have sort of, you know, Jesus bust out of the tomb with, you know, kind of big stunt, you know, so everyone could see it like he did with the transfiguration, even though he did that to only three people. Why didn't he, why didn't he do it differently uh, if, the, if the goal was new life or, you know, empowerment? Um, you know, and I talked about, um, to, the, to, my, to my group, this theology in the Bible called Deus Absconditas. It's a Latin phrase that means the God who likes to hide. And I think if you read both Old Testament and New Testament, uh, the people of God are always forced to kind of chase after God. And there's a theological reason for that. It, It really comes back to the necessity of faith. If it was just about, okay, this God's most powerful, we'll follow him, or we'll, you know, do whatever he says, it ends up being kind of just blind obedience because, out of necessity. And I think part of the reason for having ongoing suffering and sickness and, and death in the world, it's not what God wants, but God has made the people of God a part of his plan to change things. And that was a choice God made, and we can question it, and we can wonder about it, but the reality is we're called to act. We're called to faith. I did some research and work on the Lord's Prayer, uh, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I remember reading a statement by C.S. Lewis in a book called Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, and he says for a long time he viewed that as resignation, like thy will be done, like, okay, whatever, God, just do whatever you want. But over time he came to realize This was an invitation for us to participate in God's will. Thy will be done, and then Lewis adds, by me now. And so, you know, why the fighting? Um, Scripture's constantly calling the people of God to be brave, to have faith, to step in, and to not always know if it's going to work or if we're going to survive it. 
you know, I remember a theologian once saying, I hate when people say, oh, I believe in God because he saved me from this tragic event or difficult event. Because there are millions of other Christians that aren't saved, spared the physical pain of a, of a difficult event. Um, I don't rely on those things. I rely on the God who rose from the dead and promises new life. And I think that call to arms is a call to daily faith. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Claire, do you want to weigh in on what you're, what you're thinking in terms of theologically, how, how Christians have answered that question? Yeah, that's, I, I do think there's something to that kind of subtlety of the God of the universe who's revealed in Scripture that is calling us and wooing us to come after him and leaving space for the will of the human to come our way. Like my 10-year-old son uh, just asked, we talked about this in section on Wednesday, he's like, Dad, why didn't God wait to come as a human being until YouTube was around? Why did, why did he come Smart. in the ancient world, Smart. right? Good, good, good if he question. had a YouTube channel, he could be everywhere all the time. People <laughs> could just see who he was. And of course, the mystery there is many people had a much more proximate encounter with Jesus of Nazareth than YouTube could possibly provide, and they saw nothing of the divinity. They had no faith. They were not moved uh, in faith and repentance. And so there is this mysterious margin for the human will that I think God keeps intact for really important reasons. But I don't know, I'm not totally satisfied by the deus obscunditus, like why is death a problem for God at all? And the way I was thinking about this, I was thinking about our good friend Athanasius on the Incarnation, remember before Christmas? Have you guys carefully read and loved that book? <laughs> well, remember it. He says in that book that death actually is an enemy for us as human beings. God ultimately has no enemies, but you and I sure do. I know if my heart stopped beating right now, I'm doomed. There's no, I could have as much willpower as I want, and I could just die here right now. So God actually, by joining himself to a human being, by taking human nature up into himself, he does for us as God and human what we cannot do on our own as human beings. He defeats death from within the story. He's the great novelist who wrote himself in as a character and defeated the enemy from within in a certain sense. I think there's a logic to that. What God does in Christ, he does as fully God and as fully a human being. And the problem was for us. And so for our sake and our salvation, he came down and died and was raised or something. That's the Athanasian line, and I like it. Oh, thank you. That's great. Okay, well, students, it's your turn. If you want to join the conversation, we have Abby's going to be um, moderating with the microphone. And so if you want to oh, raise your hand, if you want to pass a question down uh, to the center of either center of the aisle, wait, the center aisle or the side aisles, <laughs> there you go. You're welcome to do that as well. So we want to hear from you. Good morning, my name is James. Um, so I have a question that kind of relates to some of what you talked about as well and relates to the, the reading that we've had this term so far. Is there a point where we overhumanize or um, where we are attempting to understand God too much? And the reason I say that is if we say, why does God allow evil to exist in the world? We're given an earthly sense of evil or God gives us rules as humans, things that you won't do as evil. But are we really anyone to say that that's evil even by God's standards or that he doesn't want to allow death or those things? Um, or are we really just reaching to say, like, we don't think these should exist. Therefore, there's this conflict with what God does allow exist. 
Wow. Are we making God's thoughts or our thoughts? Are we put, putting our thoughts on God when it comes to this? Deep thoughts for Friday morning, James. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for keeping it I light. I can take a whack. Should I try? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. Of course, our thoughts are not his thoughts, and I think the first word of theology is to calculate the difference between the creature and the creator. So lest we think we're getting farther with our words than we actually are. And yet God has given us words to think and to speak about him in Scripture revealed through the Spirit. And so the task of theology is trying to make sense of our experience in light of what God's given us in Scripture using our minds, our reason. Um, that to say, basically, I don't care about evil um, for the most part unless it's afflicting me personally in the form of pain and suffering. Honestly, like, I don't care that a volcano is about to erupt somewhere. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things that are catastrophic natural disasters, what you could call natural evil, chaos in some form that don't impinge on my experience or any other human experience that of people I care about, let's say, so therefore it's not suffering for me. But I do think this specific kind of evil that we call human suffering, the experience of evil there, we've been given a specific vantage on it from within the Bible, that it is kind of a terrifying puzzle and problem, how God can be all-powerful and all-loving and good and yet allow a world in which truly horrific forms of pain and suffering, both psychic, physically, mental anguish go on, and how that fits in the rubric of God's divine providence. Is it evidence of our sin and punishment, and therefore we just have to see it as good? Is it kind of arbitrarily meted out to all of us just on the circumstances and contingencies of time and chance and place? Uh, are, we're not going to get fully inside God's mind in this life and unravel that puzzle, but you do get visions of it. And Paul the Apostle says in Romans 8, somehow all things are going to work together for good for those who are living uh, and loving God and living according to his purposes. But that Again, that's a hope for a kind of future knowledge in the resurrection and in heaven and in that new embodied hope where we're going to see things from angles that we can't currently see. And so I do kind of agree with you. The posture for me is humility lest you trespass uh, too far with words and your own reason to think you could understand the ways in the mind of God. But I do think... When God himself cries, when the son cries to the father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that mysterious uh, cry of dereliction from the cross, which must have to do with physical, psychic, and spiritual turmoil to redeem us, to die for our sins, we're given license there, a window into God's proximity to the puzzle of human suffering and how catastrophic it can uh, be for us. What do you think, Dr. Gupta? Yeah, that was great. That was a nice, nice little mini lecture I there. It Appreciate from you. that. Yeah, sorry. Um, time. I'll take a little bit of a different angle about something I've been thinking about lately, and I think affects all of us. Is you know, especially in America, we're taught to think critically about everything, and to kind of break everything down and analyze everything. And there's something good about that in terms of not being naive, but sometimes we're not able to appreciate art for what it is or appreciate something bigger than an argument for what it is. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be giving a lecture ne uh, next year on the topic of wonder. And it was someone, someone invited me to speak on wonder. And uh, it just made me think about have we taken wonder out of the Christian faith because we're so quick to overanalyze everything. Do I believe this? Do I, you know, do I agree with this person? You look at, like, Twitter or whatever, and, like, it's all about, 
agreeing or disagreeing or liking or if you could disliking. Um, and I just wonder when we're reading the Bible, even for this class or in church or when we hear a sermon, um, are we stopping to uh, let ourselves experience wonder? Um, and I, when you were talking, I thought about the word mystery. Um, the Orthodox, um, the Greek Orthodox Church likes to talk about the importance of approaching God with a sense of appreciation of the mystery of God that uh, we're not so quick to always, you know, just get into the nitty-gritty of breaking things down, but to take some time to just wonder at the resurrection and wonder at who God is as, as a greater being than us. I, I think that's actually an important thing to do um, in, in our education and in, in our religious practices is to take time to actually experience wonder and mystery in some of these things. Thank you. All right, we've got another question, I think. Go ahead, Abby. Thank you. Hello. Hi. So my question is, I went to the Dalton lecture on Monday, and one of the speaker's main points was that we can't take the specifics of the Bible literally because they are often inaccurate, like the age of the earth, which is quite different from the lecture on the same day. So is the, gen is the genre of the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament really a big enough difference to take the New Testament in such a different light? Wow. Da, 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 da. Okay. Okay. Uh, what do you think I, I, would I don't know what the lecture was all about or who the lecture they was. They were not a biblical scholar. But I'd like to believe. Okay. But I'd like to Two believe scientists. that they weren't saying you shouldn't take the things in the Bible. Okay. So a part of it is the terminology we use. Literally is a very confusing word. So we could talk about historically or we could talk about seriously, right? So. Um, I, get, I give many lectures on this in class, so I just want to clarify. Um, you should always take statements literally in the Bible that are meant to be taken literally. So, for example, um, there is an actual physical site in the Middle East called the Inn of the Good Samaritan, where you can go on pilgrimage and see this inn. But that's kind of laughable because that's within a parable, and parables by nature are made up. Okay, so if I said, let me tell you a story about, you know, this elf that did this, right? I'm beginning a story that's, that you're immediately meant not to take as an actual historical story. The Gospels, in general, are written in the um, genre of Greco-Roman biography. They're meant to be taken as eyewitness, uh, uh, influenced or sourced accounts of the life of Jesus. But within that, there's all kinds of things that Jesus says that are hard to take, quote-unquote, literally. For example, Jesus talks about, you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of, someone say what he says next. Hell. He doesn't say hell, he says Hades. Hades. He actually uses a pagan word for the underworld that Jews didn't believe in, nor Christians later. Why does he use Hades? Because it was a familiar concept of the underworld. They, they got the point, right? Are you meant to take that literally? Absolutely not, because certainly Jesus did not believe in Hades. So why does he use the word? He's evoking an image they would have understood about the place where evil is or the place where evil has power. So my response is you should always take literally the statements, events, and ideas that are meant to be taken literally as historical or whatever. And you're always meant to take figuratively the statements that are meant to take figuratively. So when it comes to the resurrection, it's within a stream of narrative that is about the Jesus who's walking through life and doing this and that. Um, so... And then you also look at reception, which means how people later received those words. Certainly the early church took all this as 
what actually happened with Jesus. So uh, that, that would be my response. And I think that fits the view of historic Christianity. Anything to add there, Dr. Yeah, Clark? I want to add something and then ask him a question. Can I do that? Sure. You have to be brief, though. So I do think a lot of people, so the genre sensitivity is right. Just think about that. Like when Luke gives his prologue, like, I'm trying to tell you what all these eyewitness testimonial accounts have been and synthesize it in a coherent way. He thinks when he's naming who the emperor was and the governor, he's, he's trying to land you, Pontius Pilate, it's in the creed, trying to land you in a historical time and place, something that happened. But there is this argument that I've heard where it's like, yeah, but there's moments later in the Gospels, especially when it gets to the death and resurrection, where the early Christian eyewitnesses had such a powerful spiritual experience as they lost their friend and their leader, that then they just kind of, they just kind of, you know, you know, he, he rose from the dead, you know, like he was such a great guy, he could have risen from the dead, and it, it's like he's so in our hearts that we just, he's, he's out of the tomb, it's empty, and there's glory, how do you respond to that kind of argument, this argument that, like, it doesn't really matter that he physically resurrected, it's just like, he rose in their hearts, he rose spiritually, that's what really matters, that's the, the account. Isn't that like a Marcus Borg uh, account? <laughs> yes, it is. Nerd yeah. alert, well, nerd alert. Yeah. Um, very off, brief, Off very the brief. record, I think that's dumb. Oh. <laughs> on the record, on the record, I would Student say, you, straight you know, actually the first writings from early Christianity that we have are not the Gospels. The Gospels were written towards the middle to end of the first century. The earliest writings we have are actually the letters of Paul. Many people don't know that because you start the New Testament with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but uh, you have First Thessalonians, which talks about the resurrection of Jesus, probably the earliest written Christian document that we actually still have. But more importantly, read First Corinthians 15. Paul actually says, and we taught you that Jesus died, he rose, and he appeared, and he appeared to these people, and he appeared to those people, and he appeared to me. And so Paul makes it a big deal that what the apostles passed on were these appearances. This predates the writing of the Gospels, probably, certainly the, the four Gospels that we have. Uh, in the form we have them, First Corinthians probably predates them, I think. And so here Paul's talking about that. He also says if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, just give up now. None of this is that important. And if Paul says that, who are we to say, no, 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 I really like this. It's fun, it's clever, but at the end of the day, Paul would consider it completely meaningless if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. He writes about that in 1 Corinthians pretty explicitly. All right, you've heard it here, the resurrection. That was brief. Very important. That was the brief. I wish that was, I had you as fast. a college professor. Yeah. All right, Abby, do you have another question for us? Hi, I'm Noah. Um, hey, Noah. So in the account of the, resurrec the resurrection, Luke says in, in Luke, he says that Mary and bunch of women, went to the tomb, saw that Jesus was missing, uh, saw the angels, heard about his resurrection, went back to the disciples, and at that point, Peter ran to the tomb to see for himself. Uh, in John, though, John says that the woman went to the tomb, saw he was missing, got scared, ran to the disciples. John and Peter went to the tomb, saw that he was missing as well, and then once they left, Mary stayed and then saw the angels and heard about the resurrection. My question is, um, is there certain aspects of Jesus' life that are more credible in certain Gospels, such as John being there personally in John versus not being there in Luke? Would John's account of the resurrection be more credible? Wow. Okay, I'm going to throw this to our Bible scholar here first. 
EJ, what do you think? Or Dr. Gupta? I'll what give just think? brief comments because basically what this is bringing up is the, the Gospels, you know, have different accounts of various things, even the, some of the events of Jesus' life and the ordering, like, for example, the cleansing of the temple uh, in, the, in, the, in Matthew, uh, Mark, and Mark, that the temple cleansing happens uh, towards the end, right? And then in John, it's towards the beginning. And so how do you reconcile this? I will say ancient biographies are different than modern biographies in the sense that there was some artistic license. Um, that's very clear in terms of the way Jesus talks. In the Gospel of John, Jesus talks in a very different way. He talks a lot about eternal life. He doesn't talk very much about the kingdom of God. Uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're similar in the way they talk uh, about some of the ways that Jesus phrases things. So there's some difference there. Um, just generally speaking, uh, I think there was an expectation that you're going to capture the, the clear events and the voice of Jesus. But, but you know, you have, to imagine, you have to imagine this is a time before modern, you know, modern historiography. Um, they, they wrote biographies a little bit differently. So, for example, when we write biographies now, we want to show a development of the character intellectually. Like, we want to show the struggles they took to get to the great person they were at the end. In ancient biographies, they show a pretty even, they want to show the person was the same from beginning, middle, and end in terms of their wisdom, intelligence, virtue. So you have in Luke a Jesus who's really, really smart at the age of 12, almost unbelievably smart, right? Yes, he's God-man, but, you know, he, there's a consistency there, and these writers want to show that. When it comes to the accounts of the resurrection and things, people say, are there contradictions? When I think of a contradiction, I think if you sat down with Luke and you sat down with John, they would argue about who's right. I don't think that's what's happening in the Gospels. I think there's some artistic license. Now, you might say, I don't like that. And I say, tough noogies. That's how they did it. So there's some artistic license to, to nuance things and shape things a little bit so that you can tell the story in the way you want. So I, I liken them to modern biopics. You know, I was talking with a friend about the movie Invictus, which is about Nelson Mandela. And... You know, you can take some freedoms there with characterization and mo moving and flow, but you can't make Nelson Mandela a woman, right? There, there's certain freedoms you could take. There's other things that you can't change. And I think it's like that, generally speaking, with the gospel. So in terms of which gospel is sort of right, I think each of them has their perspective they want to portray of the person of Jesus for the purposes they have of showing who he is, revealing his identity through their Gospels. That's, that would be the general yeah. way I would approach that. Thank you, Dr. Gupta. You know, I'm a historian, and, and it, things aren't that different now as yeah. compared <laughs> to then. Yeah, so historians make their, their money. At, well, they don't make a lot of money, but they, they make their careers off of different takes on different figures. Anything to add to that, Dr. Claire? All right. Let's, let's get another question. Thanks. Written is fine as well. All right. Hi, my name's Lainey. Hey, Lainey. Um, so I have a question that kind of ties back to when Dr. Gupta mentioned um, the question of why didn't Jesus appear to everyone. So mine is, in ancient times, did indigenous groups far away from the original centers of Christianity have the chance to know Jesus? How can we justify the fact that for many years, mainly European and Middle Eastern peoples had the cultural knowledge of how to become saved. And even if hundreds of years of indigenous subjugation and exploitation were historically justified under the guise of spreading Christianity, 
how are we to deal with the thought that though Jesus died for all of humanity, entire groups of people for millennia may have been unknowingly doomed? Laney, all right, okay. Dr. Claire, why don't you answer yes. this one? Yes, <laughs> excellent Briefly. question, excellent question. With only three minutes left, maybe. Oh, yes. No. Or okay. whatever, a few minutes. Yeah. Let me say very briefly, I'd love to talk more. Massive question. We often have a very shortened European imagination of the rise and spread of Christianity that is false. Christianity went immediately to India, to China, all over the East, within the life of the apostles. So Africa. Thomas, Africa, uh, North Africa was is basically, in my mind, shaped Christianity more than anywhere else. Um, so we actually think of it in small ways, I think, as a European and American thing. And there's a historical sort of thrust there culturally. But I think, you know, as far as general revelation, as Dr. Ramos talked about earlier in the semester, we can't underestimate the importance of the Bible and of God coming in Jesus of Nazareth and the incarnation. But we shouldn't underestimate the power of the way God makes himself known to us through his creation, the book of creation, the world. And, you know, the inkling C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and these guys had interesting theories about how Christianity is not a fairy tale or a myth, but in some ways it's the true myth. Because if you do careful study of world mythologies and religion, you find a similar kind of driving hunger to know the one single creator God and that that one single creator God would extend love and fellowship to us even in the form of a sacrifice of himself and so they play with that you know and even in some of their own fairy tales and Lord of the Rings and and Narnia and I think there's just a final word to say judgment belongs to the Lord and the ways in which people knew or didn't know uh, the fullness of God's self-revelation remains a mystery there's also very interesting stories. I'm not an expert on these things, but even in um, indigenous America, there's a great story called Black Elk Speaks out of the Native American tradition in which people were having experiences spiritually that were leading them to Jesus apart from the presence of colonial mission. And I mean, this is a very complicated thing that we'll have to have a whole class on. Thanks for the question. Dr. Wendy. Gupta. Yeah, really briefly, we have to hold in tension two things in scripture that are very clear. One is that the God of the Bible is infinitely loving and compassionate. He doesn't just say, oh, well, that mass of people is doomed forever. Um, you know, Israel often repeated the refrain, the Lord is compassionate, you know, full, full of love and mercy. Uh, this is the God they know. This is the God that we know. Um, on the other hand, we have to hold this intention too, there's no other name by which mortals can be saved. So to say, oh, as long as they got some religion or as long as they got, I don't know, I, I've heard, you know, one theory, and these are all just theories, but one theory is this kind of with what light they have, what, you know, as much as they can be leaning out, knowing their, their weakness, their meekness, their smallness in view of an infant God, knowing their inability to, to be the human being they're meant to be, you know, with what light they have. What I don't like is when people say, okay, well, if they can be saved by any other means, then we don't have to go to them. We don't have to talk about Jesus. You know, the, exactly. the gospel is very That's clear. Uh, this is the greatest news. Let's get this out to everybody. So we have to hold those things in tension, but all the while knowing a, a God full of compassion and love. Well, thank you. Thank you to both of you. Thank you to the student questions. Um, can we give our panelists a hand this morning? Thank you. Thank you.